Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hyperion Hub. I'm John Alois, and joined by Sean Degenhart. Hi there. And John Redling Schaefer. Hello, hello. We like to start things off each week with our Disney views. And this week, we're going to talk about something we don't normally talk about, and that is comic books, and mostly comic book shops. Comic book shops, I don't know if you guys frequent them often or if you've ever been in any of them, but they are typically mom and pop, brick and mortar type places, and they can be found anywhere. And I've been to so many over the over the course of the years throughout the country. And I grew up with one in my hometown, but I get to see them as I go, as I travel. And um, about 10 years ago, they weren't always the most friendly place to go into. You could walk into a comic book shop and feel like an outsider. But I think slowly but surely, uh, people realized that they needed to maintain a clientele and they were understanding that they were bringing in new people and people were interested in reading comics. Now, I kind of think, unfortunately, right now, not many young people are reading comics, but uh, every so often you'll see a family walk in. Uh, we've got a couple of local places, um, one right here in Washington called Zeke's Comics and Games, and then one in Peoria called Acme Comics. And um, I talk about comic books, and how does that relate to Disney? Well, Disney has many of classic comic books that include all your favorite characters, and now, of course, they own Ar uh, Marvel. And uh, it's just one of those things that I think uh, people would appreciate something about it after you walked in. If it's the art, if it's the games, it's the, the toys and the statues. A really cool place for nerdy people like me to go hang out. I, I went to Acme all the time as a kid. I um, I don't think I fully appreciated what I was doing. You know, that, that was just, I had a friend in, in when I was young who, who loved comic books. And we would go, and I, I was always, I think I must have caught that period of time that you were discussing, John. I always felt intimidated because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to touch anything. It's like being with my parents at a, in an antique store. If I knock something off or if I rip it, that's an original. That's a, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm just going to stand over here in the corner, but you know, I, I should, I should go back and, and learn to appreciate that a little bit more. And especially if they've learned a little marketing and customer relations skills and most of those, that's good. Clara's just getting into the Darth Vader comics. So I um, sent Dan Zara a message just saying, where do you start? Because we don't know comic books. And, you know, you look on Amazon and there's 40 different ones and series 2A. and Yeah, I, I don't even know how to begin all that. No way. Well, I can just give you a brief background. I mean, typically there are story arcs and they could start at any point. Uh, it might be issue 44 to 49. It's a certain story arc and um, it could carry you on into reading more. I just thought it was important because there's an important transition period going on right now where there's a lot of digital comic books sold and those mom and pop type places are still very important. And the ones who have evolved into selling more games, not just comics or having game nights or tournaments, those are the ones who are uh, seem to be continuing to do well. And uh, they might sell nostalgic uh, items as well. Marvel 
gives you a digital code and then you can have it on your iPad. And it's almost like following hmm. kind of an animatic or a cartoon with word bubbles. It's kind of cool to read them that way. Paper still works. So they're fun. They're, uh, there's a lot of interesting stories. The Marvel Cinematic Universe wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for what the artists and the authors wrote and drew years ago. And I still think Disney pays homage to that even when you least expect it. You watch Big Hero 6, all of a sudden, wait a minute, Fred's dad is Stan Lee? Wait, what, what's this all about? And, and, and I laughed, and my, my kids go, what, what's so funny about this? Oh, hold on. And then we you know, took the time to explain who Stan Lee was. And, and, and I think um, I, I appreciated that aspect of that movie, a lot of parts of that movie, honestly. Hey, you have former Marvel product, by the way. All right, this week we are taking a deep dive into some Disney music history. And for that, we go to our Disney music historian, Sean. Take it away, Sean. Yeah, today we are going to start at the very beginning of Disney music. And now that Disney owns Fox, we can say, you know, the very beginning is a very good place to start, to throw that Sound of Music reference in there. Um, we're going back to the very first studio music director, um, Carl W. Stalling. Stalling was born November 10, 1891 in Lexington, Missouri. His parents were from Germany, and they arrived in the States about 10 years before his birth. His father was a carpenter. At age 6, Carl started playing piano, and at age 12, he was playing for silent movies at their theater in Lexington, Missouri. He also served as a theater organist at the St. Louis Theater. In the early 20s, he began conducting his own orchestra and playing the organ at the Isis Movie Theater in Kansas City. He would accompany these silent films and just totally improvise you know, while the action was happening. Um, who else, either, John, uh, was in Kansas City in the 1920s? Wow. That's where, that's where the Disney connection happens. So in the early 1920s, he met Walt Disney, who would come over to the theater and hear Carl playing and accompanying these movies. Um, at the time, Walt was producing the Laugh-A-Gram shorts, you know, at the Laugh-A-Gram Studios, doing, I believe, was it the Alice Comedies at that time? Yes. Okay. Um, Disney was impressed with Carl's styling and introduced himself, and they became friends. Um, Stalling arranged for some of Disney's shorts to be screened at the theater, and Disney made sure that Stalling would be there to play and accompany his films. Uh, when Laugh-A-Gram went bankrupt in 1923, Stalling helped Walt getting him a job with the Jenkins Music Company to produce the Song O'Reel live-action films. I was unfamiliar with these. Have you heard of those? The Song O'Reel live-action films? I have um, not. I guess they would print out... They would print out lyrics on cue cards and show to the audience so they could sing along. So that might have been the very first Disney sing-along, you know, way before VHS or beta. After Walt moved to California, he and Carl uh, kept in touch. And in 1928, Walt was traveling from California to New York City to record Steamboat Willie. He stopped in Kansas City and hired Stalling to score two other shorts, Plain Crazy and the Gallopin' Gaucho. So the very first two first Mickey Mouse shorts, uh, those were originally silent films. Um, so Carl added the music scores to that. They recorded those in New York, and while there, Walt hired him as the studio's first music director. So Stalling then moved out to California, and he's basically been credited as creating the process of scoring a cartoon. 
um, a lot of innovation, you know, as you can imagine, adding music to film. He was the voice of Mickey Mouse in The Carnival Kid in 1929, which is crazy. Yeah. Wow. So, so was he credited as the voice of Mickey? I, I'm not sure if he was credited or not. I know Walt was doing him pretty much consistently at that time, but for whatever reason, I couldn't find that out. He was actually the voice of Mickey in The Carnival Kid. I do know that there were moments where uh, Walt wasn't available, and they would just pick somebody who could get Mm -hmm. the voice relatively close. Yeah. Um, So Stalling, while he was there at the studio, encouraged Walt to create a new series of animated shorts that would match to the music. And of course, that led to the development of the Silly Symphonies. Um, on September 20th, 1928, Walt wrote to Roy, um, his brother Roy, and Ub um, with the idea of a musical novelty cartoon series. Of course, the first Silly Symphony was Skeleton Dance. Um, totally backwards from how it's done today, but Stalling would write the music and give the music to the animators to animate the cartoon to the music instead of vice versa. He pioneered the use of bar sheets, which was kind of like a storyboard that would include the musical sketch of what was going on at the time. So you could see, you know, when the brass had a hit here, this action was supposed to be taking place, you know, on film. He was very much known for his usage of classical music and popular tunes of the day. Um, Anytime, you know, uh, something was mentioned that made him think of a popular song, he would use that. And, you know, audiences at the time would know that and get that reference. Um, He helped Walt streamline the synchronization of music with action. That was called Mickey Mousing. You know, when a music accent would, you know, accompany somebody getting hit on the head or, you know, whatever it might be. In 1924, Carl received a patent um, for something he called the tick system, which helped synchronize music. Um, There was just little musical ticks that would go along to help synchronize the action, and that eventually led to the use of uh, click tracks. Um, And that was created and credited to Jimmy McDonald, of course, another Walt Disney Studio employee, sound effects guru, voiceover artist. After two years, um, both Ub and Carl left Walt Disney Studios. Um, rumor has it they got a better offer in New York. Um, so they left the studio. Walt was very upset. It was kind of, you know, kind of took the breath away and took the heart out of the studio when those two guys left. Um, something kind of amusing. Um, Carl went in to tell Roy he was leaving while Walt was on the other coast. So he didn't want to have to face Walt and, you know, what that would do to their relationship. So they told him while Walt was out of town. They still, eventually, they made up. They left New York uh, a couple years later, um, but they still did freelance work for Disney. And uh, he was a music director for iWorks until 1936, when iWorks developed his own animation studio out in New York. Um, In 1936, Carl was hired by Leon Schlesinger for Warner Brothers, which led to the creation of Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. And that's perhaps what Carl's most popular for. Um, he was music director there for 22 years, doing over 600 animated films. They said he was averaging he was averaging one score a week 
And not only was he writing them, but he was also conducting them. Um, there's a great CD out called The Carl Stalling Project um, that includes a lot of those original recording sessions where you hear the directors calling the takes and you hear them start and stop to fix something. It's a fantastic CD. Uh, he retired from Warner Brothers in 1958 and passed away in Hollywood in 1972. Um, some of the films that he scored were, of course, Skeleton Dance, um, Mickey's The Opry House, uh, The Terrible Toreador, Hell's Bells, The Merry Dwarfs, and then The Springtime, Summer, and Autumn, Silly Symphonies. Some of the other shorts he did were Minnie's Yoo-Hoo, The Barn Dance, we already talked about Playing Crazy and The Galloping Gaucho, When the Cat's Away, Wild Waves. In Arctic Antics, he was the voice of the singing walrus. And this was the most fascinating fact I learned. He arranged, didn't write, but arranged the music for the Three Little Pigs, and it's him playing the piano solos. So when the brother pig that plays piano, that's Carl Stalling playing the piano. So certainly set the stage for music as we think of it um, in the Disney studio. Great innovator and just a fantastic writer. And you said he left the studio in, in the early 30s. Yes, it was in 1930 when he left and eventually came back a few years later and still did some work. But he, he, he left for good before Snow White. Yeah, he was gone by that time. So, that, yeah, that, that, that is unfortunate. But man, what a way to set the stage and lay the groundwork for what would be so important. Those, the early um, Silly Symphonies were how Walt paid the bills. The innovation that came out of the Silly Symphonies uh, with the music synchronization, the color, the multiplane camera, you know, I mean, that was laying the groundwork for Snow White. And then goes on to Warner Brothers to create Looney Tunes based off of the uh, name, probably, Silly Symphonies, yeah. and Merry Melodies. And Merry Melodies. And you think about... Um, not so much in the Disney films, but in the Looney Tunes, the you know opera references, all the classical musical, classical music references, and the pop songs. You know, "Hello, my baby," "Hello, my honey." You know, with Michigan J. Frog. He really, I mean, set the standard. I mean, because not even just for Disney film music, but film music in general, with the click tracks, and you know, syncing the action to the music to help add emphasis. And I mean, so, I mean, he was really a pioneer. Yeah. Anytime you, you learn about somebody who does something like that, uh, as far as innovation goes with specifically talking about the click tracks, uh, I find that fascinating because this was early film production and people didn't understand how even film worked, let alone uh, learning as you go. And uh, that always impresses me as we look at these some of these history moments. You know, you mentioned when certain key components from the early days, you know, would leave Walt's employ. I have to imagine he took that very personally, especially, you know, this guy came from Kansas City. I found him, you know, I, I could see how that, oh, I, I gave you this entree and now you take off for New York with someone else. I, I get it. I mean, that's, there's a loyalty issue. And I know we've all seen um, and read about the stories of the splits over the, over the decades and Disney. But this, this is an amazing story of someone I've never heard of that really was there at the beginning with him and, and, and really an amazing pioneer. 
And when you think about losing Ub Iwerks, basically one of the co-creators of Mickey Mouse and his first full-time studio music director, I mean, what do you, what do you have left? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there there's a hole that you have to imagine. I'm never going to replace this, mm-hmm. and and I'm in trouble. Yeah. You know, another one yeah. of those names where uh, that that Walt uh, met this person and then eventually moved him out to California. There are a few people like that. Ub, Virginia Davis. Um, Walt was loyal, and he also knew how to find people who got the job done. I mean, he we saw that the rest of his career, and the fact that. Uh, he could work with people so well, um, made people want to work with him. So that's wonderful. Great side story, uh, a completely historic figure and very important to Disney history. Thanks, Sean. If you'd like to hear a deep dive into a special topic that you know about or you want to share a topic with us, please contact us at podcast at the Hyperion hub.com. If you listen to us on Apple podcasts, please go out rate and review us and share and like, and subscribe and do all the things on social media that will help people find the show. We'd appreciate it until next week, John and Sean have a great week, everybody. See ya. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at the Hyperion hub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion hub. Hyperion hub.